0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Roy from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Carmen Alfonso Rico, so general partner at the fund. She had only worked with Morgan Stanley and Felix Capital and Boston Capital. She's been investing in companies like Hopin, uh, Lock, Sitequise Cy- HR and others. Um, she uh, is looking to launch a new fund with Spoke We see a big thank you, Evgenia, from Tron Tron Capital for the introduction. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Carmen.
1: Hi, thank you very much for having me, and, and thanks for uh, connecting
0: us. Awesome. So, uh, you know, I was, I was interested to know about your journey, and you know, how did you get your start into Venture Capital and, and and Morgan Stanley?
1: Sure. I actually started my career in politics, um, which is like kind of a big detour. (laughs) And and then tried, I made an attempt to launch a startup um, in Spain uh, when I was out of school. It was a marketplace for crowdsourcing journalism. And that didn't scale for many reasons. I, there were big learnings there around the team, around the business model as well. But once I had attempted that, I actually realized I needed to go serve my time and get some sort of like discipline and process into my work. And so I moved to, Morgan, moved to London uh, with Morgan Stanley and did three years of investment banking and actually had an amazing like learning experience and, in general, amazing life experience. Met great people, had lots of fun. And then moving to VC when I was actually about to move to New York with Morgan Stanley, and I didn't even have a house in London anymore. But I met Antoine from Felix, um, a friend of us connected. Uh, as then I met him for breakfast, and then I fell in love with VC and I fell in love with Felix Capital. And so I stopped my move to New York and then I stayed in London and moved to Venture Capital. And that was like over six years ago now. And um, yeah, there was no way to look back. Actually, to be honest, I started in BC because I thought it would make me a better founder. I thought that I would see a lot of startups and I would see what makes startups succeed, what makes startups fail, what are the sort of traits, and what I could learn as a future founder. And I just realized though along the way that I loved investing. And um, I then joined a Spanish fund called Samaipata Seed Fund Focused on marketplaces and network effects, and I launched their fund in London. So I was leaving like, London and for them and, and did a lot of marketplaces and network effects, both in B2B and B2C. And, and actually came across Hopping to your point. I was actually my first angel investment, and I am lucky that I put um, Hopping's pre seed 100% of that pre seed together all the way from sitcom, who ended up leading to my family, who also angel invested, every investor on that cap table I brought on board. And I did something else because I wanted to help Johnny. And so I helped him the way I could with the skills I had, which were build him my cap table, review the term sheet, like, you know, very busy skills, but that I was applying as an angel. And Back then, I wasn't necessarily aware of what I was doing, but I loved it. And so I started, as you mentioned, this little micro fund called the fund.vc. I started the London branch. The founders had already launched in New York and LA. And I co-founded the London, uh, the fund.vc London. And basically, the fund.vc is a community of founders and operators that has an investment arm. And so we invested $50k checks into pre-seed companies. And we've been doing that for the last 18 months. I have an amazing portfolio of like 20 companies, and that allowed me to continue working with founders as an angel. While I was a partner at a series A fund called Blossom, and I was leading some some series A investments. And it is then with the two perspectives in the market that I actually realized, one, I love working like an angel. Two, there was value in working like an angel, but bringing on the VC expertise. And third, that there was probably an opportunity in the market to do so. And so I left Plaza and with my partner, Anthony, we've launched Cocoa, which is a, a 15 million micro fund that and we like to say we're VCs turned angels. So we invest angel checks. And there's no friction in allocation. This is 100 to 250k a pounds. And we bring on the VC expertise and network because we've been VCs, we know how VCs think, how VCs operate. And our aim is to become the in house VC for founders while they're raising their first round, but also afterwards. We wanna be the person. Founders come for any independent investor advice they need. When they need unfiltered, neutral investor advice, we want to be them, there for them throughout their journey. And also, we collaborate with other investors because we don't compete. Uh, we just want to be in working with the best founders and the best investors. And so that's more on like what I'm up to and how I got here. And from an investment thesis perspective, I like to say that I look for businesses that have insane customer love. And by the way, very happy to talk about Hopin's thesis, but that was pretty much it. And the idea is customer love can be found in B2B and B2C. And it can be measured in very different stages across the like very different ways across the different stages of a company. But it is this fundamental idea that if your users, if your customers, love your product, love the experience so much that they gather around it, they build that community, they interact through it, they refer each other. That's actually a super, super strong driver of organic growth and a very high barrier of entry. So it's very fascinating to me that on something that's almost like an emotional connection that you establish with the product and the experience, you can build a highly scalable and defensible business on top of this. And you might have figured from my name and my accent, which I am cannot escape, I'm very happy not to, that I'm from Spain, but actually I was partly raised in Germany. So this idea of emotional connection with defensibility, scalability, really fits like the two personas in me. You
0: yeah, know, I think there are a lot of uh, interesting points that like you've talked about, especially your journey with uh, with Morgan Stanley and Felix Capital and, and Blossom, and, and and finally the thesis of the fund. Um, I wanted to, to understand uh, did your time uh, as an operator in Morgan Stanley help you become a VC? Or do you think a lot of uh, young, uh, you know, uh, professionals who just passed out of the university or college, uh, should they should they work in as an operator for some time before they want to think about a career in VC?
1: I think everybody wonders like what gets you into vc and what's the best optimal way and my thing would be there's really no way because i did such an off journey into vc right and most of us some come from banking some come from startups some come from completely even more random places and and i think to me personally morgan stanley was incredibly useful because Especially on soft skills, like the hard skills, the knowledge that I got there on like the industry I was doing financial institutions, I was, like during Basel III, which is a European regulation post crisis on capital requirements of banks, never used that again, never. But the idea, like the soft skills that I acquired, and um, on the quality of the deliverables and on the like attention to detail, even that ability to also learn how to they like work very hard and help your peers but also stand your ground on things that are not your problem like push back like a lot of like be strong in like you know getting people to do what you need them to do like manage and it it was amazing like in, in terms of soft skills it was the most valuable experience i've had um so far and actually Anthony my partner likes to my my partner at Cocoa he loves to joke about this he called it my Morgan Stanley training and because during fundraising it's been incredibly useful right because in banking there are a lot of things that don't work and there are a lot of there's a lot of time that is not used the best ways but you learn certain things that are very helpful and I learned that everything that leaves for a client needs to be absolutely best quality it needs to be done on time it doesn't justify to stay two weeks to do it perfect it's not about that but it needs to be attention to detail there shouldn't be typos the format needs to be perfect and these little things that might seem like a waste of time actually signal that you care right and now when we fundraise we try to deliver the same excellent experience to our lps because these people are trusting our us with their money and we need to show to them in every possible way that we care more like we ha- we understand it's such a big responsibility to have money from these institutions, from these individuals and to have their trust. And so I think these levels of like and how to co- manage complex processes and how to yeah get people to do what you want, like all these things were soft skills that I have been super useful. But likewise, you can work in a startup and join as an employee number three and end up managing a team of 20. And that is incredibly valuable. So I think... Because VC is a people's industry. And it's, I like to say it's a people's industry and it's a muscle's industry. Muscle is the more startups you see, the more you learn. And the more like interesting sort of questions you'll be able to ask, the more interesting thought, like insights you'll be able to take from it. And, and it's a people's business. And, and that just means that there's so many angles to go after. You just need to find what is your superpower um, and then, you know, go for it.
0: You know, I, I think it's pretty useful what you talked about, uh, soft skills and attention to detail, especially, uh, you know, when you're coming out of, uh, out of an institution like, like Morgan Stanley. Uh, I mean, I can see
1: a space five meters away from me. Like, it's just like, it's almost like I spotted like five meters away and, and it seems like not valuable skills, but there are because they, they mean a lot more.
0: Yeah, no, I I can totally understand. It can be very useful, especially you know when you when you're investing into startups, you can really go deep and understand you know uh, if the if the founder has really thought thought through it. And uh, you know uh, we recently had the news of, you know, of a of uh, VC fund called General Catalyst uh, coming into Europe, uh, and and a lot of micro angel funds and micro VC funds, I would say, rather say, who are um, uh, investing to startups, uh, operators who work full time in, 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 in a startup or in a company, and they they're running these um, uh, micro VCs. How do you, how do you analyze the the current venture landscape today? Do you think uh, the venture capital the uh, the venture capital landscape is ready for a lot of micro VC or operator led VC firms?
1: Yes, I think it's a uh... A super interesting question, because to me, it's the biggest opportunity that there is now in BC land, especially in Europe. I'm going to talk about Europe, which is the market. I know. And apologies if I'm coughing. I've got this very well-known, infamous uh, virus that doesn't let, let us go for like two years. But COVID aside, um, um, I think it's the most interesting phenomenon happening right now. It has happened in the US and it's happening in Europe now. And I think that if you think about it, the beauty so presidency in Europe is non-institutionalized, like it's like yet to be sort of institutionalized. Who will lead presidency in Europe for the next ten years is yet to be decided. And the beauty of the microfinance phenomenon is that we all collaborate with each other; we don't compete. And if you look at the market, what's happening now, and I'll share sort of my view of it. And by the way, I've built a model around this. I put my money where my mouth is. But basically most funds are getting larger and larger, which means they need more stake. This is a virtual cycle, like rounds are getting, there's a lot of money to deploy, so rounds are getting larger. So you need larger funds. And um, larger funds mean you need more stake. Why? Because if you look at the economics of a fund, if I have a 15 million fund, like Cocoa, and I have 1% ownership at Exit, I need a company to be $1.5 billion in outcome for me to make $15 million, i.e. for me to return the fund, which is what I look for when I make an investment. If I have a 400 million fund and I own 1% at exit, I need a company to be 40 billion at exit for me to make 400 billion I need to be a fund return. The likelihood of a company to be 40 billion at exit versus 50 1.5 billion is very like different, right. So what can I do as a 400 million fund? I can try to get a higher percentage at exit so that if I have a 10% at exit, I need a company to be 4 billion, right? For me to make 400 million. So it is more likely that a company is 4 billion than a company is 40 billion. So I'm always going to try to get as much percentage as possible because that's going to increase the probability (coughs) of me, actually, of a company being a fund returner. So larger funds mean more stake. The problem with more stake means that it brings more competition because every percentage that you win is a percentage that I lose. And I'm going to fight for every percentage with my life because the probability of it to be a fund returner depends on that stake. And so that's what's happening in the (coughs) main market. And then you have micro that go and be like, actually, you know what? I don't care about stake. I'm just going to optimize for access. For that, I'm going to be small, but I'm going to optimize for access. And I think that that's an amazing phenomenon for founders, because suddenly you have people whose interest is 100% aligned with you because they don't care about stake. Stake helps, but their whole model is not based on capturing stake. And so suddenly a few misalignments of incentives that happen when like investors prioritize stake, it's always like founders wanna minimize the dilution and and investors wanna maximize their stake. So it's like two contrary forces. And suddenly with microfunds, that doesn't happen, right? So you can have a partner that is 100% by your side. And then from a returns perspective, It is very, very interesting, not in absolute amount deployed because micro funds are so small that they don't allow you to deploy larger amounts of capital because in 15 million fund as an LP, you're going to be able to put a million, a million and a half, no more. But in terms of returns of that capital invested, it is unparalleled compared to a 400, 800 million, 1.5 billion fund. Why? Because of the same dynamics that we explained. It is much harder. It is easier or like more likely to believe that you're gonna be invested into a lot of companies that are gonna be $1.5 billion. So you're gonna be able to return the fund multiple times than to believe that you're gonna find many companies that are gonna be 40 billion. Especially because given that I don't care about stake, I don't win or lose a deal. I can optimize for being into every deal that I want. If I need 10 or 15%, I'm gonna win one. And I'm gonna make a lot of money in that one if it does well, but I'm gonna lose other 10. And so I might, I lose money that I could have made in those 10, right? So I think it's this idea of size, stake versus access and alignment of interest with founders. And I think micro funds are the future of pre Seed and so much is happening and we all help each other, right? And we all are completely aligned with founders and help each other because a ticket of 100K of a friend of mine who has a micro fund doesn't mean I cannot put my ticket for Cocoa. As opposed to if I need 15%, my ticket, a ticket of another fund means I cannot put my ticket. So I think those dynamics around collaboration and being 100% on the founder side are super exciting for the ecosystem.
0: To have an interesting start for you, to you denote know that the founder of Beautiful Lives. Increase the social media presence by 10x. They manage to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost effective social media tool that helps businesses scale the social media marketing efforts. Use social socialpilot to get a 14 day free trial. Yeah, no, absolutely. You absolutely, you raised some very important points, and uh, and I think uh, you're absolutely right that uh, the European market is, is ready for. Uh, for operator-led and you know micro VC uh, funds, and uh, you, you know uh, especially for for pre-seed, I want to understand what do most investors get wrong when it comes to market sizing.
1: What they get around, like how they look at market size.
0: Correct. You know, uh, uh, you know, lot, lot of founders talk about a trillion-dollar market, but 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 you know, where do investors go wrong when they when they dive into uh, into into the correct market size?
1: Market sizing is very important because. You ultimately need to believe that this company, let's say I'm a 400 million fund, I ultimately need to believe this company can be a $4 billion mark, a $4 billion company for mm. me to have a fund return. So if the market is $2 billion, that's not going to happen, right? Um, again, it, like it's just you will need to capture 100% of the market share. And it's just so market sizing is very important. Now, it's not about a trillion sort of market you know typically like it's never a trillion it's about i think how i look about the market is i'll do my own market top down bottom up market sizing i'll understand like how likely and i'll give you an example about how likely it is that a company can get to like be a very large outcome in the market that they're operating or in the market that they will operate sometimes it's not a big market yet but you believe that it's a growing market i have some investments into VR. Right. From a couple of years ago where VR was not a big market, but you can make a, th- a bet that they will grow eventually. Question there becomes how soon enough or not. Right. Is it going to be within the period that it has to. But if you and um, it's also like how I look at market sizing as well is to understand if, how founders look at the market and if they really understand their market. It's very useful. A lot of the DT you do at Preseed around the business model, the market is also a lot on founders like I don't take their business model as like face value. And I think that's gonna happen. The likelihood that that business model ever becomes a reality is like close to zero. But I like to see how they think. I like to see their ambition. I like to see their understanding of the market and their understanding of their model. And I like to see whether they have common sense. (laughs) And so I look at that as such. But for example, like very back of the envelope kind of calculations, but looking into a company, Um, and we did the math we would need it to be 2.5 billion dollars for it to be a fund returner so we went on to the market size the market size is humongous sure but i went more onto a bit more specific bottom bottom up top down but also a very cool like very quick metric which is okay so how many companies in the space are at multi-billion not competitors but in the space like multi-billion and you find quite a few at 10 billion 12 billion I was like okay i can see this now, there's like a very big player. Um, again, it's not a competitor, but it's in the space. This is a SaaS tool. It's 330 billion. Okay. So, ideally, this company IPOs, but if they were not to IPO, what are the trans- like the acquisitions in this market type? Like, there are multiple acquisitions at five, at seven billion. Yeah. So, I have enough to believe that given the market sizing I've done and given the market dynamics, I can't believe this company can be 2.5 billion or above. And it is important, and, and this is why the one trillion sometimes is a vanity thing. It's like market size and market dynamics, because there are structures sometimes in the market that just won't allow you to become a multi-billion dollar company, right? Uh, except if you find like a different way, but let's think for example, direct to consumer brands, which I've done a lot, Are there's always this question around, can they scale? Can they become big enough to be a venture-backable business, right? And the reality is, like, well, it depends on many factors. And if you think about beauty, for example, in beauty, exit multiples are 8 to 10x. Why? Because they're like 8 to 9 super cash-rich acquirers that will pay a billion, two billion. 5 billion, very hard to see in beauty. But a billion, a billion and a half so my hundred with 100 million in revenue you can be a unicorn so to say if you have certain strategic things that they need and i know obviously there have been some ipos and stuff great if you look at like other sectors like maybe fashion even like clothing who are the acquirers or generally private equity what are the multiples more like 3x so sadly to be a billion dollar company you need to be 300 million in sales rather than 100 million in sales. And that's three times as harder, right? So you like look at the market structure as well and what I build. It's not just even gen set and financial services. It's a huge market, of course, but like, can you monetize them? And does the market allow you to? And if not, are you thinking about it in a new way? Because if you're thinking about it in a new way, I'm interested because there's definitely money on the table, but can you take it? So it's about combining this, Market sizing, market dynamics, and how our founders are thinking about
0: it. Interesting, and uh, you know, uh, how how do you ensure that you don't have any un- unconscious bias from from your past successes?
1: You definitely do. <laughs> I mean, it's a people's business, and so you do. Like, but this is why I think one, you have a partner, <laughs> uh, and um, and uh, there are many sort of theories around this i'm I'm very much a team person because i think that the ultimately diversity of thought and diversity of background leads to better decisions and i don't trust myself to always get to the best decision by myself i think that whether i'm challenged along the way and get input different input that's very important and I also think past successes and past failures, if you think about it in VC, successes take much longer than failures. So you actually learn from failures quickly, quicker. And feedback loops in VC are very long, either or. It takes a long time to, for you to know whether you're a good investor or not. Like it's very hard because a company takes seven, 10 years to succeed, right? And um, so, um, how do you ensure that there are no personal biases, one with a partner and two with like decision processes, right? And doing the work. And, like, there might be, like, a market that I might hate. And hobby is a good example. Like, online events and ticketing in summer 2019 weren't exactly sexy, like, to say the news. But he was fascinating. Johnny was a fascinating personality. And he started this Facebook group. And there was true customer love for, like, his product. And people would message on Sunday night building tutorials for each other. And I was like, wait. It's Sunday in July, and people are set, building tutorials on how to use Hopin for each other. There must be something here. And then you go and like figure it out, like, and learn all, the, like, read all these reviews and like speak to these people and try to understand why there's actually a big pain and why Hopin is such a good solution for it. And then you build your conviction. So I think we like to say at Cocoa that we have big ears. And this is a sentence that it comes actually from Dow Leoni. we have no credit for it in Sequoia, but it's like you need to listen and you need to not let it's a balance between what you know helps you make speed like quick decisions. you cannot meet every founder who you get a deck from. you cannot devote a week to every company you speak to it's just not possible, but not like still always be open and be naive about like where you could like you know where this can go and never ever think about yourself like i would be the words like oh this doesn't work for me it's not like never like you should never apply that thought so it's about this balance between leveraging experience to make more efficient um decisions but at the same time staying very very open because there's so many opportunities out there and this is to your point as I earlier When we think about COCOA's investment thesis, we say we will invest in, it's founder-driven. So if we like founders, we will invest into any market we can understand. And the key is we can understand. We don't need to know about this market now. We don't need to understand it already, but we need to be able to get to understand it. So why? Because we need to understand the size and we need to understand the challenges. So the size of the opportunity and the challenges. But... Not because I've spent most of my life in consumer commerce enablers and communities, am I gonna say no to a DevOps tool? And in fact, I've invested in DevOps. So that's this idea: stay open-minded um, is the key.
0: All right, yeah, staying open-minded and you know being open and nice is, is the right way to, to keep keep learning over time. And uh, you know, what what advice would you give to founders who so trying to get you know brand names on, on cap tables? And, and do you think like brand names like the like the sequels and tiles do do the really matter, especially in the pre in the pre c stage?
1: It's a very good question. So I think there are many things, there are many ways to think about how to choose like your investor for seed and pre pre seed seed series. A. And I think that brand is definitely one. Like, but brand applies to very few. Like brand applies to Sequoia. A16 set, benchmark, and then there are verticals in which different like funds have like vertical expertise and they're the best at that. But like brand applies to very few. Um, and in some cases, it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it does help. If you have Sequoia in your Series A, you have better chances to raise a Series B, for sure. You still need to execute though, but it helps. Like, of course, um, but there's much more to it than brand, right? There is like personal fit, which is very important. And you should never underestimate. Assuming, let's assume once again, like terms are important. And to have a partner that like wants to structure around as a win-win is very important. But if you're lucky and you get a lot of traction and this is best case scenario, but terms will become a commodity. They all will converge to the same type of terms. And in that case, you need to optimize for brand. You need to optimize for personal fit because these people it's, there's a, an investor, an LP actually, who likes to say that um, you spend like the average relationship between founder and investor is longer than a marriage. I, it's longer than eight years, and eight years is the average marriage length in, in Europe. And I like to say it's actually like having a baby with somebody because um, getting somebody out of a captive is much more difficult than divorcing somebody. So right. basically, you get you got to, you're stuck with them forever, like when you have a baby. And so you need to like these people. Right? Like they, you, they need to be. There needs to be a cultural fit. You need to want to call them at night when things go wrong. You want to wanna celebrate with them when things go right. So that's very, very important. And then third, which is probably like a sub, like a bigger like brand is a subset of this is value add. And how you measure value add is very different across stages, and it's very different for what you're optimizing for. Right? Like some founders know exactly what they want to do, and they just need. Fast cheap capital. So they're like amazing hedge funds now, turn VCs that will deploy very fast cheap capital. Some founders are creating product but have no clue about how to go to market. And they can find an investor that has done it over and over again. So it depends on what you're optimizing for, but you should definitely um, take that into account. So I would say terms, which are indicative also of the relationship that you can build with person value add. And this comes brand, but also many other forms and shapes of value add, including network of this VC of that, and third person of it.
0: Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan uh which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Uh, uh, no, I I think it's, it's very interesting you talked about value add uh because you know I, I was coming to that point about uh you know Tiger and uh, Softbank deploying a lot of capital. And you know there's been a question about what sort of value add do uh such big VC firms are doing, especially with Tiger, you know, who's deploy a lot of capital uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, but, but it's interesting to know that you know, especially. Do you think in the in the early stage, uh, there been a there could be a lot of value add from VCs, especially in terms of hiring and you know, uh, product or go to market strategy. So,
1: I mean, there's the eternal question around the VC value out, right? And I think, again, go back, keep going back to this. This is a people's, person, people's business. There'll be people who will help you so much and there'll be people who won't help you so much. And like, I think you need to, when you think about Tiger and the likes, they actually do their job. They provide fast, cheap capital. And as a founder, if you're a third company and, you know, exactly, that's perfect, right? So, like, maybe if you're, like, lost, like, you know, a fish in the desert and need a lot of help, maybe it's not, and hand-holding, it's not your VC. Um, But with value add, I think rather than specifics on how they can value add, I think there are ways in you can measure the likelihood that they will add value or the likelihood that they'll stand by you. So, one of them is skin in the game right and i think skin in the game is very important and you measure it two different ways you need to understand if you are a one million ticket in a one billion fund you're tiny for them you're a one million ticket in a 10 million fund you're a huge ticket so it's not about the size of the ticket it's about the size of the ticket relative to the size of the fund right so how much do they have at stake now the second way to look at skin in the game also, and we've mentioned it earlier, is the stake that they own of your company. Why? Because if I own 1% versus I own 10%, the likelihood that you become a fund returner is 10 times higher if I own a 10%. So when my time is limited, it's not that I'm a bad person, but I will probably likely more devote time to companies where I own 10% than to the company I own 1%, right? And so in that, you need to figure out typically how what's their average ticket size and typically how much... Percentage of they own in companies because if they always own one percent, then yes, it's it's the same. But like you don't want to be the company where they own one percent if they generally they own ten percent. So um, I think skin in the game. And then third, actually, and I always say, it's an emotional value, emotional like connection thing. So you also need to do as a founder involve investors emotionally because there's a rational part of them which should be calculating how much money they can make and out of you and therefore, or with you, and therefore how much value they should add, or they sh- how much time they should devote. But there's also an emotional part of, I like this founder, I like this company. It might be irrational, but I wanna help them. And uh, you need to play that as well. Um, but I think that's uh, the, probably the most objective way to measure potential of value add. And the second thing that I always tell founders to do is DD your investors. Talk to companies that have been invested by them, reach out, call to them, and actually if you can speak to people, so to founders where things went wrong, and those were the backers, that's the best kind of thing Um, to the... Then on the specific value add, look like it really depends on the investor. Me, and I'm going to be fully transparent. Am I going to be the best person helping you build a product? I doubt it. I've never built a product. Like, um, am I going to be the best person helping you build an engineering team? Well, I've never built an engineering team, so no. Am I gonna be the person who can connect you to people who know how to do it? Yes. Am I gonna be the person who you can rehearse with um, how to fire your first, like the employee that you wanna fire for the first time? Yes. So my superpower in this case and how I add value is by becoming this like trusted confidant of founders and this person they come to for anything they don't know where else to go and or they don't even know where to start, we'll figure it out together. I'll never have the answer probably because I haven't built five companies and exited them, but I'll have a framework on how to think about it and I'll have the people we can go to to ask. So it depends, others are amazing in building products because they've built like they've been head of product at Dropbox, head of product at Snap. So it very much depends on the person.
0: You know, I think I think that's pretty useful. Uh, where you talked about you know how, uh, how we see an add value, especially uh, in, in relation to their part of experience and you know what what they can bring on to the table for a founder. And uh, you know, uh, Hopin would be one of, one of your biggest uh, winners. Uh, I want to understand what do you think has been one of your biggest misses?
1: <laughs> Very good question. SRR. SRR. Soccer NFT um, company, yes, and there there was a miss for many time for many reasons. And the series A was super competitive, and like they went for an amazing investor. And but I actually saw it. It wasn't me leading, but I didn't like spot the opportunity in in at previously at Seed. And I think the mistake I made there, and it's a mistake that we've mentioned earlier before, is I thought I knew a lot about the football soccer market. And so I looked at it from the angle of almost like a media rights business. I don't know how familiar you are with Sorar, but basically it's NFT cards with soccer players. And back then my thought process, because I know soccer teams and I know how they deal with media rights on TV and stuff, the, the thought was like, no way a soccer team is gonna allow anybody else to make tons of money out of the rights of their players, right? And I didn't look at it like a crypto business. It was two and a half years ago, but I made that mistake. So I guess that is my biggest miss so far.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's super that's really interesting uh, that you talked about it. And, uh, you know, especially founders, uh, because there are a lot of early stage uh, founders of listeners. How, what advice would you give, give to them if they want to, you know, hack into their first round of funding and if they want to connect with, with VCs?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, there are many, and we've discussed some of the points on how to think about, like, you know, your cap table and what to optimize for. But when it comes down to reaching out to VCs, I think a few things. One, do your work on who's relevant. Um, Because if you're doing, like, a deep tech, you know, open source, like, DevOps thing, don't go to, like a consumer fan because like that's a waste of time for you. It's a waste of time for them. And it's just like doesn't look great so to say. So do your work on who you want to target. And then try to get actually warm interest. And I know this is difficult. And of course reach out on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And it might have in my work and I've spoken to many companies that I got called, but the reality and we can discuss whether this is right or wrong, but it's the reality. So it might be useful to understand so you can hack it, is that any investor, any VC investor gets really like hundreds of companies a month, right? And at the end of the day, the day has 24 hours and we fundraise because we raise money as well. We are in that, we're like founders, we raise money, right? Which is great exercise and very humbling. So um, you raise money and you take care of your investors. You also take care of your invested companies as portfolio and you look for new deals. So the spam of attention that you have is like limited. So the, you need to think as a founder, how do you call the attention? So a cold deck on LinkedIn that is 50 pages long and where I actually scroll through quickly and don't get the key message is not going to make it because I, you know, you, so my advice would be try to get an entry point warm and always be very snappy have the key messages come across so that actually in a scroll of the eye the investor is like oh this is interesting i want to learn more you need to find that hook so that an investor wants to learn more and they thing the advantage you have is that we're all vcs because if there's one thing we are or we have is intellectual curiosity so it's easy to make us bite but you need to make us bite because there's so much information that we have that we cannot process that you need to be smart about it so don't make it long don't make it detailed just tease us and make us want to know more and obviously if you cannot find a warm contact do it through linkedin do it through twitter but keep that like tease kind of uh, aspect to it. And then um, think that like that throughout the process, right? You want to make sure that after the first meeting, the first call, the investor walks out with the three key messages that you want them to walk out and you want to obtain feedback from them because even if it's a no, you can get some value out of it. So push for feedback. You know? Some will give it to you, some won't because it does take time because it sort of also limits their flexibility in the future. If they tell you, oh, if you do A, B, C, D, come back and then you come back and they still don't want to invest. So they manage that, that sort of dynamics, but try to get feedback. And my biggest advice on all this is run your round as if it was a B2B sales process. This is a sales funnel. You feed the top with investors. You bring people down the funnel up to term sheet. And you need to push people down the funnel or out of the funnel because I know early is actually very valuable as well. But think about it as a B2B sales funnel. And if you're in a very privileged position, and this doesn't apply to everybody, create FOMO. But this obviously depends on, depending on how your funnel's going, you can then play for more, right? Let's say you've got to Sequoia and you've got to A16Z and it's going amazing. But your dream is benchmark. Well, you're about to get a term sheet from Sequoia and you're about to get a term sheet from like index, let's say, you can ping A16Z and be, by the way, we're close to term sheet, like maybe not say by whom, but like you know, and push people down the funnel. So you get all the terms used to choose. This is a very privileged extreme position to be in and very rare and um, just sort of kind of getting into the dynamics. And actually to that point, I'll say, because I think this is important. You guys in the news, in TechCrunch everywhere, just see all the success cases, right? So it might be this idea that if you don't raise from Sequoia in two weeks and add like, you know, 10 million, 100 million posts, you're failing. And that is not the case. Raising is really, really hard and it takes months. And in this B2B sales process is a proper like process that really takes like uh, so much of you, right? And it's not an immediate thing and it's not a walk like in the park. And I've had founders who've spoken to 75 investors to get one yes and i keep telling them all you need is one yes do not give up it's very hard to not give up when you've got 70 no's right, right. and right. when you've got people almost over the line but then they decide that no actually not and you need to start from scratch so like that is the reality the reality is not the 10 million 100 million posts that by sequoia and decided over a weekend these things are happening because this market is like it is but it doesn't happen to everybody, and if it's not happening to you, it doesn't matter. And on this Hopin's first round took a lot of time, right? Then it got very competitive the seed round because Johnny is fantastic and his product was really good, and there was a very good early traction. And then COVID came, and obviously the, the thing exploded. But and um, the first pre-seed round was very hard, like because it was a difficult market. He was a first-time founder. People were really not super keen. It was the middle of the summer, so in every great story, like it wasn't ever easy. So do not fool yourselves. I think like this sort of in effect and all these like rounds that we see now create this almost, and um, this feeling of like, you know, that you're not making it, that is not real.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think you made a lot of relevant points, especially for, you know, early stage founders. Uh, they should definitely, you know, keep it and, and keep listening to it. Uh, but, you know, I, I could you want to go
1: to top three? What's your favorite business book?: Ooh. <laughs> so actually, I'll confess I have a favorite business book, but I'll actually confess that I have this rule where I don't read business books at night. I read novels because I mm-hmm. love to read, but it has to be fiction, and actually I read in Spanish, so I don't forget how to um, write in Spanish. But I think very good books um, never split the difference for negotiating that a founder recommended to me, a founder, I have the privilege to back. And it's a fantastic, fantastic book. And then if you want to understand VC, I really like a, a book called Eboys, um, that is done by, I know there are all these typical books that, you know, lead startups and the hard things about hard things, but like getting a little bit about like off track, Eboys is the story of benchmark. So it tells how Benchmark was born, and it tells the rationale behind it, right? It's fascinating. And then the third one would be done deals, which in the, the founders of the main funds in the world, on Sequoia, Kleiner, Perkins, like Asics, they all tell the story in five pages of their funds.
0: So interesting. We, we, we put uh, all, the, all the three books. I, I don't think any, any past uh, uh, guests have talked about all these three books, and, yeah. and definitely look at reading all these books.
1: Yeah, so never split the difference, definitely read it before you're around. It's really good.
0: <laughs> Got we put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you, when you started your career into winch capital, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently?
1: When I started in BCE? Correct.
0: Okay. Uh, is there anything you would have focused on or done anything differently? Yeah,
1: I think... It's a, it's a very good question. So I think I would have met even more companies. <laughs> I think, again, it's a muscle thing. And back then as a junior in VC, it's a bit of a different kind of journey. But I think if I could have spent even more time with companies and just yes, sourcing them, but also listening to founders, like understanding their challenges, and so I, like that would even have like accelerated my my muscle building even more.
0: Interesting, and
1: uh, do you have any favorite
0: online
1: tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Any favorite tools, okay. like text. Oh gosh, okay, yes. Um, so, am. disclaimer, I'm an investor, but it's the best product ever. And um, it's a superhuman, which I'm also a user of, but have mixed feelings with superhuman. Uh, superhuman for WhatsApp, uh, Slack, Telegram, Gmail, everything. So the idea is you make communication person-centric, not channel-centric because actually I do not care if you write me an email or a WhatsApp. I just want to know that you've written and I want to reply on the spot. So insane product, Compose.im. Then second wow of the year in terms of product, Sigma OS. Also disclaimer, I'm also an angel investor. It's a browser, okay. a web browser that is so, like, these guys are just so smart. So they think about all the hacks that you do with the browser, like putting two side by side, like, you know, how you make the window smaller so you have two side by side. You can do it on the same browser. You can create your workspaces. It's, it's just like, so it, it's just perfect to, like, not have three windows open and never closing the tabs just in case, like, you forget. Like, and third, um, so you're superhuman, obviously, but um, Asana. Great fun of Asana to manage the like projects.
0: Uh, no, I think I think all all, all of them great products. Uh, we will, will put that in the show notes. Um, Carmen, what is the best way people can reach out to, to you and know more about uh, Cocoa VC? Sure,
1: Carmen at Cocoa.vc.
0: right, we'll put that uh, in the show notes. Uh, Carmen, thank you so much for taking our time and, and speaking to us, uh, and uh, really enjoyed the candid uh, conversation we've had.
1: Well, thank you so much. Apologies for the (coughs) coughing, but I thought we got through it. So I'm very happy with it. Yeah, thanks
0: so much. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.